Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, our text this morning is kind of like a closing argument in a trial, basically where all mankind is found guilty before the Lord. And this trial actually begins in chapter 1, where Paul makes this accusation and judgment against the ungodly Gentiles, the non-Jewish people in Rome, and basically shows their idolatry and lists off all of these sins. Paul goes into great detail about the foolishness and wickedness that comes from rejecting the one true God. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, Paul said, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And then in Romans chapter 1, in verses 29 through 32, Paul also said that these ungodly people, these Gentiles, these idol worshipers, that they were filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In chapter 1 of the book of Romans, the religious type of Jews had to be cheering Paul on as they read this letter. These religious type folk had to be cheering Paul on as they read, yes, yes, yeah, get them, Paul, sick them, old son, something like that, I'm sure. That's my thoughts on it, not necessarily the Bibles, by the way. But you know that they had to be cheering. Get after them. Paul tells them how ungodly they are by their idol worship. But then chapter 2 happens. And Paul turns his attention from the ungodly Gentiles over to the religious Jews. And he addresses them as such. The religious folks cheering this letter on at first would have never dreamed that Paul would have shifted gears and basically would tell them that they themselves are under the exact same condemnation. Paul points out that the Jews were just as much sinners as the Gentiles and that when the Jews condemned the Gentiles, they were also condemning themselves. Wow. I mean, biggest thing we need to gather from the first two chapters is this. Paul's warning wasn't just for the Jews. It's for us today, church. We need to be careful, very careful, that we're not condemning those who practice the same things we're practicing behind closed doors, church. Do you hear me? The sins that we think that are in darkness that chapter 2 actually told us that one day will come to light. Because the truth is, every single person in this room is guilty of sin. Only God is truly good. 
There's no such thing as good people. There's only a true and living God that is good all the time. And he wants us to understand that. God wants us to see in the scripture that he's given us how good he actually is. And that people like us need to find forgiveness and his grace that we read about in the scripture and receive that forgiveness and grace that we so desperately need. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're thankful. I want to first and foremost thank you for our South Campus this morning. I pray right now that you would speak powerfully through Adam as he preaches your word, that many would hear and receive the gospel. Father, I pray for those that are under the sound of my voice that are maybe watching online, those that are here with us today, God, I pray that over the next few moments that we will see what it is that your word has for us today, that we would see it, we would hear it, we would understand it, and most of all, that we would receive the gospel if it is not the center and foremost in our lives. God, I pray that over the next few moments that all distractions would be hidden away and we would be able to hear from you through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at our text this morning, Romans chapter 3, and see where Paul picks back up. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But it, through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already changed that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, or charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Church, let me tell you something this morning that you probably already know and something that you learned when you were a kid. Our God is good. It's probably one of the first prayers that you taught and you learned as a kid when you're praying for your food, right? God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. You remember that one? And so it's one of the first things that we learn about God in his nature. God is great, God is good. And the Bible points to that over and over again, and particularly in the Psalm. Psalm 34, 8 urges us to, to, to taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who trusts him. Psalm 100 verses 4 through 5 says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth 
endures for all generations. James 1.13 tells us that God can't even be tempted by evil. He is perfect all the time. He is good all the time. And since Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Son of God, he never sinned a single time in his earthly existence. When he took on flesh and lived with us some 30-plus years, he never sinned a single time. Imagine never sinning a single time in word and deed. Could you imagine what that even looks like? Could you even imagine growing up being a sibling of Jesus? Ponder that bizarre question with me just a minute. Imagine growing up in the same home as Jesus. I mean, obviously Jesus would have been the greatest son ever. To, to, to marry his mother and his earthly father, Joseph, he had to be the greatest son, the most thoughtful the one that listened the most, right? Could you imagine? He also had to be the best big brother there ever was, right? I know my kids, they're always fussing and fighting and carrying on with each other because the big brother likes to show the bigger brother who's, or the little brother who's boss, right? You know how it works? There's a pecking order in the household. But imagine me and Jesus with your older, having Jesus as your older brother. I mean, he would have been the best big brother of all time, but I imagine it was tough. Jesus' siblings. I mean, here you have God in flesh as your brother. We know the writer of James, which was Jesus' half-brother. That was actually Mary and Joseph's son. You know, he didn't even believe until after Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and raised again. And he was obviously one of the, mo the, the, one of the greatest writers of the book of James in the history of the Bible. But think about that. Ponder that for a minute. I mean, you can imagine Jesus' little brothers and sisters saying something like this. Jesus never does anything wrong. You can hear it, can't you? He always does everything right. But thank God for his goodness. Thank God for his greatness, for him being perfect, because we can always trust in God to do the right thing 100% of the time. You know, the world is overrun with leaders that don't do the right thing all the time. Am I right, church? There's all of us that are always going, man, I wish that this would happen or this would change or, boy, that was a horrible mistake or we should have done something different. We've got people that run our world that lie and cheat and steal at the drop of a hat. But God won't. Why? Because he is good, because he is perfect, because he is righteous. It is against his very nature. How many of you believe God can do anything? Let me tell you what he can't do. Do something against his nature. It's impossible for God to be anything less than what he is perfect. Something God actually cannot do is to go against his very nature. We can always trust in him to do the right thing. God is good. How do we know he's good? Well, first of all, he's given us the Bible. He's given us his word. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Ponder that with me just a second. In verse 
1 and 2, Paul tells us what a great blessing it was to be a Jew, and but it started out with a question. What advantage does a Jew have? What is the value of his mark or his circumcision, which is what circumcision was? A mark of the covenant that God had made with his people. The original word for advantage is talking about things that are super abundant. What is super abundant? And Paul says, first of all, it's the oracles of God. And Paul begins to answer this question saying, hey, the Jews were blessed in a very, very big way. I mean, think about how the Lord appeared to Abraham and so many of the Old Testament heroes that we talk about. Think about how God set the captives free uh, from slavery in Egypt, how he watched over them in the wilderness, how he, 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 he led them through the promised land, how he gave them abundant blessings. What advantage has the Jew or what value is the mark of circumcision? Much in every way. God gave him gave them his oracles, his word. And this, that's exactly what the word oracle simply means. It means words. And all the things that Paul could have listed, he said the number one advantage that the Jews had always had was God's word. Think about that for a second. That makes a lot of sense to me. Whenever I think about it and I ponder on that, what is the great advantage of having the word of God? We see testimony after testimony. We understand and know the nature of God. We read things that go, okay, this makes sense in human nature. Okay, these things make sense about the God that we serve. And then we see all these testimonies about how God worked in the Old Testament uh, characters that we read about, how he rescued his people, how he blessed his people. Think of things like Noah and the ark, the Lord parting the Red Sea, David killing a nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, and many, many more. All these stories point to the goodness and the greatness of a sovereign God. But the Bible also gives us commandments, doesn't it? It tells us how we ought to live to glorify God, to show his goodness. King David gave great praise for God's word. In Psalm chapter 19, 7 through 11, says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. You see, the Bible is full of, of prayers and praises and prophecies and promises and godly principles for living. No wonder Paul said, what benefits do the Jews have? The oracles of God, the very word of God. Guess what, church? You have a blessing sitting in your lap this morning, on your phone, on your computer, up here on the screen. You have the very 
word of God, the Bible. And no matter what other blessings we might have in life, the greatest blessing is to understand the heart of God by reading the scriptures and knowing the scriptures, having this life-changing, eternal word at your disposal. God is good. And we also know this because he's blessed us. He, uh, we know this because he's blessed us with the Bible, and we also know it that he's good because he judges with righteous judgment. Look at verse 8, or verse 3, rather. It says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us do evil that God may come? The condemnation is just. The Lord gives us a glimpse of his holy justice. These verses really lay out this giant contrast, if you will, between sinful men and our most holy God. And in verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, it's the contrast between our lack of faith and God's absolute faithfulness. Then in verse 4, it's the contrast between our dishonesty and God's absolute truthfulness. And then verses 5 through 8, it's the contrast between our unrighteousness and God's total righteousness. So God is making a, a comparison contrast right here of who it is we are and who it is God is. And every single time, I don't know about you, but whenever I compare myself to a most holy God, I'm always going to fail in comparison. Anybody else with me? I mean, when I look at the life of Jesus, when I see how Jesus walked, when I see how Jesus talked, and I know that my life is supposed to look like that, I look and go, oh, crap, right? I'm not doing a very good job here. And I think that that's the truthfulness of man if they're really honest to goodness with themselves. What, God, what Paul's saying here is that as good as God appears, he even looks better compared to us. <laughs> Am I right? As good as God is, we can read about how good God is, but I'm telling you what, God is not nowhere near as glorified in your life until you start looking at him and then looking at you. A lot of times we don't want to do that, though, do we? We like to look at God and look at who else? Everybody else. Am I right, church? A whole lot easier. You look at somebody else's sin, it looks a whole lot worse than your own sin. And that is the, basically the whole point of Romans 1, 2, and 3. If you could just name all three chapters and say this is what this is about, that's exactly what it's about. The thing about it is, that doesn't let us off the hook for the things that we do that dishonor the Lord. Even though we look at God and we compare him to us and we go, oh, man, this doesn't look nothing like this, like God. And, and, and I'm failing miserably. That does not let you off the hook to just do whatever you want to do. 
Don't catch that, that I'm saying that at all. Does not let us off the hook for even a second. God must and he will judge the world with a standard of his absolute perfection. His standard is the only one that counts. Do you hear me, church? How many of you have ever umpired a baseball game, refed a basketball game, judged a rodeo? That's even worse, especially a team roping. I used to umpire baseball back in the day, my younger days. There's been a many a time that I was escorted from the city and even to the state line because my life was in jeopardy from softball moms. One thing I've tried to teach my sons, and I hope they're listening, is this. The judge or the referee is human, and they do make mistakes. Anybody want to say amen? They do. They're they're human. They are going to miss things. You may see something that they have missed. The whole crowd, all the spectators may have seen the exact same thing that you say that you saw, and you are in total agreement with thousands of people that have seen this horrible mistake. Am I right? But guess what? Your opinion does not mean anything compared to theirs. They are the ref. They are the umpire. They are the judge. And their opinion, even though it may not be shared with thousands of people, at the end of the game, at the end of the rodeo, is the only one that matters. Do you hear me, church? You may be in total disagreement. You may not like it. You may say, it's unfair. I want to contest. And maybe wherever you're playing and whatever you're doing, it can be contested. And even though you share the same opinion with everybody and those around you are going, yes, this guy is blind. At the end of the day, their opinion is the only one that matters because they're put in a position to make the judgment. What does that got to do with the Bible? A lot. When it comes to judgment day, God's opinion is the only one that counts. Whether you think something's unfair, not fair enough, it does not matter. But God doesn't make mistakes. He's good. He's righteous. He's holy. And he is the only one qualified to make that call. The good thing about it is, is he's told us in his word how to make ourselves right at the judgment day. And it's clear. God is good. And we know this because he judges people with perfect justice. How else do we know he's good? He exposes our sin. Look at verse 9. It says, what then, are we better than they? Not at all. We have have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it's written. There's none that are righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. (coughs) All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat 
is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving the poison of asps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Path of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. <clears throat> Again, Jesus is the only sinless person who has ever lived. Do you agree with that? You need to. The Bible says so. And in verses 9 through 20, God's word compels us to see that all the rest of us are not God. We are sinners. Everyone else who was born was born with a deadly disease called sin nature. In order to show this truth beyond the shadow of a doubt, Paul uses verses that are found several places in the Old Testament, like Psalm chapter 14, Psalm chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 59. Here the Bible gives us another strong contrast, the righteousness of God against the rottenness of our sin. You see, a lot of people are wanting fluffy church verses and fluffy preachers to get up and make you feel good about yourself every Sunday. Well, guess what? That's not me because that's not the truth of the Scripture. We've got to see the rottenness of ourselves through the eyes of the Scripture so we can break plates much glory and honor on the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one who deserves the glory, not me, not you. We see this strong contrast of the goodness of God, the rottenness of us, our sin. And I'll tell you before, it's easy to look around the room and see the sinfulness in everybody else. So easy. And the hardest thing, I think, for all of us to be able to really grasp is to see the sinfulness in ourselves. Am I right? You know, it's, it's kind of like your children. You can see the rottenness in everybody else's kid but yours, right? And some are worse than others, right? I, I never try to give mine the benefit of the doubt. If it don't sound like them, I'll go, I don't really sound like them, but I can sure find out about it. I've been hard on my kids. If somebody says, well, this kid's done this, I try to really try to take a, a, a bigger look at it, not try to go daddy bear on somebody right off the bat, unless it just sounds like it's something out of character. But guess what? I don't trust my kids as much as I trust your kids, which is not much at all. You understand what I'm telling you? I said that kind of backwards. I don't trust my kids just like I don't trust your kids, as far as I could throw them, because I believe anything can happen. The truth is, is we get like that sometimes with our sins. We boast in ourselves and we think, no, I'm nowhere near as bad as this person out here, but the Bible doesn't paint you in that light, my friends. Listen to the feel-good preachers all you want to, but the Bible does not say you can do it, okay? The Bible says he can do it. Sit back and watch. The Bible is not about making you feel good. The Bible is about telling you the truth about who it is you are so you can say he is good. 
Do you understand the difference? It's about glorifying the Lord. And so it's easy to see sin in other people and not look at ourselves, point this way, but not point this way. And today, man, there's all kinds of outlandish sins that are supported and promoted and celebrated by our government and and the most elite people in the world and it's so easy to sit back and watch this on tv and everybody's so upset about some of the things that happened at the grammys this week and boy you're just gonna make a stand for jesus because they're just doing what it is they do and you're just completely outraged but you've not looked at yourself in a long time either I know you don't like it. It's the truth, though. I don't like to look at me either. I'd much rather look at y'all. It's easier. Makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> I couldn't get it out. I'm so sorry. My apologies. But that's the truth, though, okay? It's easier to look at the other person. It's easier to point out all the crazy in the world and forget about pointing at ourselves and going, what's crazy about me? Lots. I got lots of troubles, lots of problems. And that's the point that Paul is making in verses 9 through 12. Are we better than they? Not at all. I mean, <laughs> this isn't rocket science, guys. It's what he's saying. And then he goes on and, and, and re- begins to repeat the Psalms. Let's get down to verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And skip down to verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My biggest problem with sin, church, is me. Can anybody else testify to that? Not many of you. But it's your pastor's problem, I promise you. The Apostle Paul understood this. In fact, the Apostle Paul will later in Romans actually identify this. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You see, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this book, in the majority of the books in the New Testament, he wrote the book of Romans, but also the majority of the books in the New Testament by number, struggled with the exact same thing. I mean, when you read verse 18, you can go, man, I identify that. Hey, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And I, I mean, I say that from this pulpit all the time. The only thing good in me is Christ, this old body, and, and, and the things that Nate wants to do, they're, they're, they're not good at times. But he goes on and says, the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. So it was a struggle for him. It's a struggle for us. And then remember back in our text in verse 9, where the Bible says that there's none that is right, none that are, that are righteous, no, not one. And then we see right here clearly in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It makes a lot of sense that we have a terrible sin problem. And the Bible addresses that. 
And we are helpless. Church, you are helpless to fix it on your own. And if you're left, if you're left to depend on your own goodness, you will never make it to heaven. You are not good enough. But guess what? He is. The Lord is. Jesus is. That's why he was the one that had to be the sacrifice on the cross, not you. He is good enough. You are not good enough. All of us have a terrible problem with sin. God exposes our sin. And he helps us through his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, see our desperate need for a Savior that is found in Jesus. Church, God is good. And we know it because he exposes our sin, our evil. How do we know else? He's, how else do we know he's good? He gives us grace. Praise God for grace. I know y'all waiting on it, huh? I've give I've I've give you some terrible news. You're not good enough. Oh man, I'm not going ever back to that church again. Thought church was supposed to make you feel better about yourself. No, it's supposed to give you the reality that you can't feel good about yourself apart from Christ. You need to feel good about Him. Look at verse 21. He says. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Who's thankful for the amazing grace of an almighty God this morning? Anybody? You better be. Verse 24 tells us that all who believe and follow the Lord are justified. Justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That means when you stand before the great and holy judge one day, what you owe, the wages of sin is death. What you owe, when it's time to pay, it will have already been paid in full, church, for those that are in Christ Jesus, for those that have been born again, for those that are saved by his grace. That's the good news of the gospel. In verse 22, we see that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can possess the righteousness of God. Look at that verse again. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Church, Jesus paid it all. He took all the pain, all the punishment, the condemnation for us. It was put upon him the Lord God was pleased to put it upon him because that was his will for Jesus to take on your sin, past, present, and future. It was nailed to a cross, and Jesus gave his life in order that your debt would be paid. When you're in Christ, you owe him and him alone. You don't owe me, you don't own this church. You don't owe your neighbor. 
You may be thankful that somebody shared the gospel with you, the real gospel, the truth of the gospel, and you may be thankful that they were willing to do what no one else would do by telling you the truth, but my friends, he is the one that paid the debts. Jesus paid it all. What is God's grace? It's God's unmerited favor. That's what I love about the definition of grace. It's God's unmerited favor. What in the world does that mean? You did not do anything to deserve it. It was given to you because God is great and holy and good. It also means you cannot buy salvation. It's freely given. You can't earn salvation. It is freely given. You can't know the right people and rub elbows with the right type of folk. It's freely given given. It's unmerited. You do nothing to deserve it. That's what grace is. The Lord does not give his grace because we're obedient or because we tithe, because we went to church. The grace of God is given because of his love for us and his goodness. Church, God is good. Do you know him today? Have you recognized your need for a savior have you called out to him in repentance saying lord i know that i've sinned i know that i've done wrong i know that i can't buy this i know that i cannot earn this lord but i want it i want to be saved today forgive me lord i want to follow after you and guys let me just tell you as the holy spirit of god leads that's what it looks like there's no special prayer there's no special regimen that you've got to do you've got to believe in your heart confess with your mouth jesus is lord and call out to him and ask him to do what you cannot do for yourself what i cannot do for you i can show you the way but i'm not the way I can tell you about the way. I can teach you about the way, but I'm personally not the way. I'm just showing you the way. And you may have gone to church all your lives, and you may have said, you know what? I think just going to church is going to get me there, and I've thought about something that I saw. Anybody remember the old show? You young kids probably never heard of it before. Mama's Family, right? And I saw not too long ago this meme with Mama, and I can't, can't remember her goofy son's name. What was the name? Okay, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. And, 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 and he said, well, mama, going to church won't get you into heaven. And she replies back and says, well, jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, you know, well, something like that. I forget. I've screwed it up completely up. Anyway, here's the point. You can jump out of an airplane without a parachute, but put one on your back is probably a whole lot smarter. Okay, there you go. I've completely botched it. Here's the point. I'll actually make a point out of this somehow. Going to church is great because you can hear the gospel. Hopefully faithful preachers all around the United States and all over the world will get up and tell people how to be right before a holy God. But my friends, church does not save you. It should only point you to the way. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, if there has never been a time in your life that you've asked the Lord to forgive your sins and you began to follow after him, today is the day. So many people are looking for a sign, but I'm going to tell you what, you've got a sign already. It's right here. It's the instructions. It's the oracle of God, and you were blessed to have it, to be able to read it, to be able to apply it today. Do you know Jesus? I'm going to end 
with prayer, if you need to talk to somebody about what it means to have a right relationship with God, if you're trying to do this thing on your own, take, take, take orders from the scriptures, my friend. It cannot be done. Today, if you want to talk to somebody about what it means to be right before a holy God, we would love to talk with you, pray with you, show you, give you a Bible free of charge. Maybe you've got some other prayer concerns. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about being baptized. Don't get off this property today without having those questions answered. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we possess what it is we need to know what it is that you've called us to. Lord, thank you that we can read your word and know who you are and what it is that you want us to do. God, be with us now. Give us a hunger, a desire, a thirst to let others know what it is that your gospel says. Use us this week. Give us opportunity to share, maybe in places that we never thought or dreamed possible with your leading and your guidance. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.